0: I appreciate the kind of prayer that's been made. Today we'd like to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 7. We're going to continue at least one more Sunday with our sermon on biblical perspective. We began this by looking at men in the Old Testament, men in the Old Testament who were great and mighty men. at some point in their life, fell to some great sin. The point of this lesson is to teach us or to try to remind us that if these great men in the Old Testament who were mightily used of God, these great men could fall, so could you. Sin is nothing to be played with, though we try to constantly. That's just, that's just a fact. Uh, people, when Jesus, when, when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, they were very simple commandments. Simple to read, simple to understand, hard to follow. But there was just ten of them. Now, granted that majority of them six or seven or so out of the ten, were all thou shalt not. They were written from a negative standpoint. By the time that Jesus came along in the New Testament, in the first century, the Jews had taken the Ten Commandments and they had added what, what we call fences to the commandments. If, if you imagine the Ten Commandments on their tablets just placed in the middle of the field and then a fence on the outside of the Ten Commandments so you couldn't get to them and then a fence on the outside of that fence and a fence on the outside of that fence. What they had done was instead of taking a mindset on how to keep the commandments, they developed a mindset on how not to break them. You say, well, now, isn't that about the same thing? Not really. Um, Pops up on my Facebook feed that five years ago one of my children had posted on Facebook. I found out that Daddy has a way of working football into every sermon. Why is that? Well, because I grew up in athletics. The Bible is written in some parts of athletics, but there are also good lessons that are taught to us in athletics. So take, for example, a team that is winning the entire game. They are doing what it takes to win. Last half of the last quarter, oftentimes they'll make the biggest mistake they've ever made. Instead of trying to win, they'll play not to lose. And what happens more often than not when you play not to lose? You end up losing, don't you? So the Jews had kind of developed that attitude. They had developed an attitude of not necessarily how to keep the commandments, but just how not to break the commandments. They completely missed their focus. The men of the Old Testament, though used mightily by God, all at some point or another, fell to some disastrous sin. And if they could fall, we could too. We are all prone to the pitfalls of sin in our life. We can convince ourselves that we're better able to deal with it than we really are. We can avoid what Paul said in Romans 12, let no man think of himself more highly than he ought. We can think that we are the individual in Luke 11 that Jesus talked about who is a strong man. When the strong man is uh, in power, all his goods are at peace. He's of a decent mind. However, when a stronger than he comes along, you're then bound, as Samson was bound, and his goods are spoiled. So when you look at it from that standpoint, there's kind of negativeness in that. As you look at these great men, they fell. You look at yourself, It's up to you to pick which person in the Bible you identify with. But now let's go the other way. Let's take a man in the New Testament who was greatly fallen. A man who would eventually say that when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That in other words, when Paul wrote that statement, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died... When he was able to see God's true perspective on it, he really saw himself a wretched man. There are many people who may have in their mind, I'm a particularly good person, until someone better than you comes along. Let me kind of explain that a little bit. As I told you, we've been reading the book The Hiding Place uh, to the Children, the the story of Corrie ten Boom and her family as they went through uh, the Holocaust in the Second World War. I think that book should be required reading for everybody who thinks they're a Christian. I don't care how good you think you are until you have the attitude that some of the Christian women had during the concentration camp I don't think we've reached where God wants us to be see Miss, Miss Corey was the only survivor of her family that went through the concentration camps as we said earlier her father died just 10 days after being arrested and taken to prison they did not find us out until a couple months later her and her sister spent nearly 10 months in a concentration camp, prison, whatever you want to say, back and forth, back and forth. Her sister, Betsy, died while in Robinsbrook concentration camp. Miss Corey was released and later became a worldwide public speaker, teaching people what they had learned in the camps. She said during one of her public speaking engagements, she saw a man in the back of the group who would listen, but he would not look her in the eye. Afterward, during the meet and greet sort of aspect of everything, this gentleman come up and he stuck his hand out and he says, You may not remember me, but I'm, and I forget his name, but he was a sergeant in one of the barracks. He said, It truly is an amazing thing. If it's true what you say, he can wash away my sins. This is one of the guards told her this. And as he stuck his hand out to, to thank her for what she said, it went through her mind. I can't forgive this man. And she even said to him, She said. My father is dead. My sister is dead. Many people died because of what you did. She said, but in, the, in that meantime, in that meeting between him and her, in those few, few seconds as she's communing in herself with the Lord, she says, I realized that the power of me To forgive this person is not something that comes from me. She prays, Lord Jesus, you've got to give me your love and your forgiveness to demonstrate this on this person in front of me. And friends, that really is the crux of Christianity. That is what, I guess that's what every preacher has tried to tell us for centuries. That the ability and the power does not come from us. We can reason in our mind every reason to hate somebody. We can reason in our mind every reason to not like somebody. We can reason in our mind We can justify why we're angry and why we're mad and why this person doesn't deserve it. Until we look at the face of Christ and we realize I don't stand opposed to this person. I stand together with this person. Because while this person has offended me, I have offended. And while we may argue with each other about who's right and who's wrong, we both would take the front seat to hell would it not be for God's grace. So you may look at yourself and say, I identify with these men in the Bible. At one point I was doing really well, but I fell to sin. You know, was there any hope for somebody like me? Well, you find an individual in the New Testament who at one point thought he was doing really well, and that's Saul of Tarsus. When you examine the life of Saul of Tarsus, from our standpoint and from the biblical record, there's not much, more, there's not many more people in the New Testament that were as vile, and hateful, and evil as the man Saul of Tarsus. I think books are good. Books open doors to worlds that we ourselves, uh, would not have access to. And this was, this was something that was even brought out in that book. Uh, their father was an avid reader. He had a friend who was an avid reader. He has a friend who also was a Jewish rabbi. And, and when the Jewish rabbi felt his family was in danger, he brought to, uh, Mr. Ten Boom a list of books, and he said, please keep these, please hide these. We may die. The books must live on. The books tell stories that we can't tell. The books reach people we cannot reach. This Bible is telling a story. This Bible is reaching a people that Paul, Peter, James, and John never saw. But one thing that books sometimes don't do is give you the visual that moves you It's one thing to read about what's occurring here in the Bible. It's one thing to kind of read about what's occurring in the world around us, but it's a completely different thing to actually see it with your own eyes. So in the book of Acts, chapter 7, after Stephen had spoken to the high priests at that time and those Pharisees or Sadducees or whatever religious men that sat among him and heard him speak. He didn't receive a a round of applause. He didn't receive a standing ovation. He received indignation from those that were around him. It says in verse 54 of Acts 7, Acts 7.54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Uh, It's worth noting that the Bible says here that they were uh, cut to the heart, as opposed to those who heard the Apostle Peter speak in Acts 2, who were pricked in their hearts. These were cut to the heart. There was no spiritual life in them. There was nothing in their soul. There was no, no good soil in them, so to speak that the Word of God may find a comfortable place to lodge and grow. It says here in verse 55, But He, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Him with one accord. Um, You know, the statement that He has just made, I see the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, they knew what He was talking about. Jesus Christ referred to Himself as the Son of Man over and over and over and over. And that's the individual whom just a few days earlier they had crucified, hung upon a cross, buried Him in the tomb because His message and His person and everything about Him was offensive to them. And they thought, if there's anybody that has missed out on Jehovah God, it's got to be this Christ person who claimed to be something we think He is not. And when Stephen said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, oh, that infuriated me. We've still got to deal with this Jesus person even after He's gone. That's right. You'll have to deal with Jesus Long after I'm dead and gone, this world will still have to contend with the Lord Jesus Christ. He being full of the Holy Ghost could look up and see God standing, uh see the glory of God, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He full of the Holy Ghost could see things nobody else could see. Uh, he full of the Holy Ghost could do things nobody else could do. Because it says here that as they stoned him, uh, in verse 60, he said, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Wasn't that miraculous? Just, Just to pause and think about what's occurring in this man's life. He's seeing things. He's saying things. He's doing things they are not humanly possible. He is seeing the glory of God and the Son of Man. He is saying, hold not this sin to their charge. And He is doing, He's just falling asleep in the midst of His persecutors and His tormentors. And I thought I was a Christian. Says here that they cried out. This is verse fifty-seven. They cried out with a loud voice, stop their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Um, we can read that in in the American justice system, and this is probably something as well worldwide. There are Degrees of crime. Whether you shoot somebody, run them over with a car, stab them with a knife, it's still a crime. What they look at is the motivation and the passion behind it. And it has often been said that a person who is stabbed to death, the crime of passion is far greater because it is a more personal crime. You have to be this close to the person. It has to be something that it's a, a crime of force against them. I mean, I can shoot you from a long distance away, but it's not near as it's it's not near troubling as me getting right up next to you and taking your life. It's one thing to hang a man on a tree, or it's one thing to hang a man. It's one thing to place a man in front of a firing squad and shoot it. It's something completely different when the entire town comes together and they pick up their stones. And one by one, stones hit and sink into the skin and they break the head and they break the eyes and they bust the nose and the man bleeds and his teeth fall out and his bones are broken. You talk about a personal crime of passion. This is an atrocious This is a devastating event. It's probably also an impactful event as well. Uh, There's probably a reason that the Lord instituted stoning in the Old Testament for certain crimes. Because if you'd have seen this once in a while, you'd probably stop doing what you were doing. Also, the moment the rock left your hand, you'd probably question whether you wanted to do that again as well. It says they laid their clothes down at the feet of a man, a young man, whose name was Saul. I do find it quite interesting that he's not the one casting the rocks. He's allowing everybody else to throw the rocks. Politicians do that, don't they? They incite a city to violence and rage and destruction, and they sit back while the anthill destroys itself. But nonetheless, he consented to this. This is not the first time Saul of Tarsus had done this. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So, at this time... I find it quite interesting that as the church is being persecuted here, they're being hunted down like wild animals. Do you notice that the text said that they were scattered abroad? The Christians left Jerusalem and they went to surrounding cities. The apostles did not. The apostles stayed. Evidently evangelism was in the early church. The Christians said, yeah, we're done with Jerusalem. We're going somewhere else. And off they went. The apostles stayed. And the apostles got to write and see what they would say here in verse 3. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Uh, not only does it make that statement here. It also makes that statement in chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. He was breathing out threatenings. Slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. These are, these are threatenings and slaughters. These are murderous sayings. We've watered down threatenings kind of in the English language. So, example, mama says, I'm going to teach you to make biscuits if it kills you. Well, there's a lot of things that my mama made me do. It never killed me. It felt like it was going to kill me but it never really did. Or in our anger, if you do that again, I'm going to skin you alive. Really? I've been guilty of saying that as a father myself And my kid looks at me and says, you ain't even used a butter knife right, much less skin me alive. Uh, We use these things. I'll kill you if you do that again. I'll snatch a knot in your tail. Really? You ain't never snatched a knot in anybody's tail. But your parents said it to you, didn't they? But it was kind of uh it was an allegory, I'm gonna do something else. Really they just meant it was gonna whip you really hard, It's what it meant. However, when Paul said when Saul of Tarsus said, You do that again, I'll kill you. He meant. He wouldn't play it. These are not allegories or these were not uh Symbolisms, or whatever, if there's a word for this, it's kind of running away from me at this point, but you get what I'm talking about here. He, he, he's not playing with this. He would go into the houses, and he would he'd take out the men? He'd take out the women. He'd take out the mothers? He'd take out the fathers. Find them. Bring them to Jerusalem. Bring them to prison. Because it's interesting here, uh, that in one of the, in one of the uh, passages that we may read, it says he went into every strange city. He wasn't happy with just terrorizing the people in his own town. He went everywhere he could find these people. Of course, the question its kind of always. It's always been in the mind of Christians that it's funny that the world out there says that God doesn't exist and they're mad at him for not existing. God doesn't exist, so we're going to shut your churches down and burn your books. Well, if God doesn't exist, what does it matter what we do in this building? If God doesn't exist, what does it matter if people read this book? If it's just a book of fairy tales, it's not going to matter. Problem is, it's not a book of fairy tales. And the devil himself knows that God is real and that his book is powerful. And that anybody who reads it, any of God's people who read it, are bound to get courage and strength and hope for tomorrow. In Acts chapter 22, notice as Paul speaks of his own life here, he says in Acts chapter 22 and verse 4, I persecuted this way unto the death. You ever noticed how many times that the phrase this way has been used by the way? But by the way, this the phrase this way has been used about four different times or three different times at this point. There's, there's a, a common term throughout the gospel that calls scriptures, Christianity, service of Christ, this way. The way. Not the ways. Plural. One singular way. Paul would say, I'm of the way they call heresy. question might ask you then. Uh, are you in the way? Yeah. Get out. Oh, no. Really. Are you in the way? Oftentimes we do need to be in the way. We need to be in a way that is called heresy. In this way that is righteousness. And in the way of anybody in our family that wants to err in their life. Acts 22. Verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way. Unto the death. Binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Acts 26. In verse 9. Acts 26 and verse 9. Paul giving a record of his life again says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to, the name of Jesus of Nazareth which thing i also did in jerusalem and many of the saints did i shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death i gave my voice against them you talk about you talk about an unhinged cruel man Saul of Tarsus was not kind. He may have spoke kindly. His words may have been sweet as honey. He was not kind. man. He was a destructive man. He persecuted the church under the death. He broke up families. Turn with me to Galatians. Let's continue reading. Let's read a little bit more uh, about the life of this disastrous individual. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion." Uh, He uses the word conversation here. He's not speaking about the words of his mouth. He's speaking about his daily lifestyle. The term conversation in the Bible oftentimes refers to a citizenship or a daily lifestyle. So Peter says, uh, for example, that our conversation is in heaven. Uh, It means that you're a child of God. You don't belong in this world. You belong in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your residence ultimately is in heaven. This world is not your own. You're simply passing through. You're a visitor, you're a pilgrim, and you're a stranger in this world. Your conversation really is in heaven. Paul says, in my early life, my conversation in the Jews' religion. Notice he's referring to it now as the Jews' religion. I think it's a very interesting phrase. I think it's probably one worth studying. But we won't delve into that. But he says, my conversation in the Jews' religion how that beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Notice that phrase there, beyond measure? Beyond measure. Uh, so, for example, <clears throat> you're baking a cake, you're making a recipe, you have measurements, right? And they need to be exact measurements. There's a few things that you can cheat on, but for the most part, they need to be exact measurements. The dry goods, to the wet goods, and so forth and so on. They need to be as close to right as possible. It needs to be in the oven the right amount of time, on the right temperature. I mean, you don't just throw things in a pan and hope it comes out a cake, do you? You ever been to a restaurant, you take a bite of a food, and you say, wow, somebody sure stumbled when they poured the salt in that one. That was something that was above measure. But then do you remember that time that David said in Psalm 23? He says, my cup overfloweth. The cup is a measure. The overflowing is beyond measure. The gift and abundance of God is always above measure in our life. But all, but but think about this as well. The cup is a measure. Whether it's, you know, physical cup or not. You pour over the rim of that. You've gone above measure, beyond measure. And you've gone above what is necessary. Paul says, I persecuted the church beyond measure. The cruelty that he exacted upon the first century church was more than was necessary, we say. There are certain degrees of discipline and punishment that are laid out in the Bible that are to bring about a good change. So, for example, when Paul addressed this church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians, he addressed an issue of a man who had his father's wife. So, from the way that the text is written, it's commonly believed that the man was having an adulterous affair with his step. And he, he, he chided the church for this. He said, there's sin among you that's not even mentioned amongst the Gentiles. I mean, these wicked people out here in this world, they're not even accused of this. He said, see that the man be turned away from you. Because he has superimposed a value on himself. Is what Paul says to that church. Well, when you come to 2 Corinthians, You find the man had been disciplined. He had been dealt with. He had been turned out from fellowship of the church. But the way that Paul writes in dealing with that, he says there was repentance in there. There was a changed life in there. And you ought to receive the man back into your fellowship unless he be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. In other words, Paul says the punishment that was inflicted unto him was sufficient to what he had done, and it achieved the goal it brought, repentance. When you see repentance, restore such an one to fellowship. If you keep him at an arm's length just because you're holier than the rest of them, it gives him the idea of being swallowed up in overmuch sorrow, that nothing they ever do is right, and it gives you the wrong idea that you're somehow better than everybody else, is what Paul says to the church of Corinth. And the reason that we bring this out is, is there's a lot of our churches who have to learn that lesson. A lot of people who had to learn that lesson. In this case, he says, "I persecuted them beyond measure, and I wasted it." He says, "And I profited in the Jews' religion above my own, above many my equals in my own nation." being more exceeding zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Um, it's it's good to have traditions. Paul and Peter, they, they would both remind us to, to walk worthy of traditions received by our commandments. There are good traditions that we can have. Um, coming to church on Sunday morning, knowing that you're going to be at church on Sunday morning is a good tradition to have. Nothing wrong with that. Having to meet at a certain place will become an issue when you're being chased through the woods by the persecutors. If you have to meet at a certain building or a certain place or this, that, and the other. Because that's what the woman at the well said to Jesus. You know, your fathers say we ought to worship in uh, Jerusalem and our fathers say we ought to worship in this mountain. You know, where's the right place to worship? And Jesus said it's neither one. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, not in place and at a time. If for some reason we wanted to meet next Sunday at 1 o'clock, we have the right to do that. I may not have very many people here, but we have the right to do that. Because it's not a time. It's not a time we worship. It's not a building we worship. It's a person we worship. Notice also what was also interesting What the church had to deal with at this time as well was not just the persecution from Saul of Tarsus in his early days, but we're still in Galatians chapter 1. Notice verse 22, he says, He was unknown by face under the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he Destroyed. You know the churches had to deal with uh, they had to deal with this individual. Um, They had to deal with running from this individual, and then they had to deal with coming to this individual. You imagine going into a synagogue or, or excuse me into a sanctuary and having this man stand up and preach to you this man who had put your father to death, your mother to death, this man who had burned maybe your building down if they had one at that time. You've now got to go stand and hear him talk. Can you do it? This is why we told the story earlier. It's real easy sometimes to be a Christian in a sterilized society. It's a whole lot different when the gun's pointed at your head. In the book of uh, Philippians, chapter 3, Paul's giving his uh, his heritage. He's giving his uh, family tree. He says in verse 5 that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee. Philippians three verse six is very interesting. He says, "Concerning zeal, persecuting the church." You mean it's possible to be zealous and and have the wrong motive and the wrong mind? Sure, all right. It's possible to be have the wrong mind frame frame of mind. I believe it was I believe it was Jesus in uh, maybe John sixteen three. He said, uh, let let me turn over there before I mess this up. I think I've got that right. John 16. uh, Let's back up to verse 1. John 16 verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. In other words... John the Baptist was perplexed that he was in prison and Christ wasn't. Do you remember that? That's Matthew 11. John the Baptist was in prison for preaching about Christ and preaching about the coming kingdom. Christ, the man he was preaching about, was walking around first. And John the Baptist in Matthew 11 sent some of his disciples and said, Hey, are you really the Christ or should I look for somebody else? You talk about somebody in the bottom of the barrel? He says, art thou he that should come, or do I need to go look for somebody else? Has this been all for nothing? You talk about a man who lost his faith. You talk about a man who lost confidence in God. And yet John the Baptist is spoken of by Jesus Christ that there's none greater born of woman than John the Baptist. So in other words, when you doubt in life, it doesn't mean that you're not a child of God. It means you have the same troubles that everybody else did, even in Bible times. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you go and show John, you tell John the things that you see and hear. The, the uh, deaf have uh, received their hearing, the, the blind receive their sight, the, the lepers are cleansed, cleansed and, and the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached. a lot of things that Jesus is reminding us so that you don't have the wrong impression in life, the wrong perspective in life. Because there may come a point in time when you're going to have to suffer for the name of Christ. And it means suffering more than the fact the church down the street disfellowships you at the local association because you're not singing out of the right hymn book. One of the dumbest things we've ever done in life is make petty things in church a major issue. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God service. Does this not describe Saul of Tarsus? Verse 3, And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor Me. That it is very obvious that early in his life, Saul of Tarsus did not know who God was. He had a he had a mental comprehension of what he thought God was. Uh, and even the Jews at that time had they had a picture in their mind of what they thought God was, and they also had a picture in their mind what they thought the Messiah was going to be. And when Christ didn't come rolling into town on a white horse with all his uh, mighty angels with him and destroyed the Roman army. Instead, he came riding into town meek and lowly upon an ass, the cult, the foal of an ass, and went and hung on a tree. They said, this is not this. This is not this. Is not, this guy? Really? So apostle says concerning zeal. Here's how zealous I was. Persecuting the church. Philippians three six. My zeal, concerning my zeal, I persecuted the church. There's a pattern. There's there's a pattern or, or a progressive understanding that Paul had after God dealt with him. When you turn back to, uh, uh, well, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to turn with me, I invite you to turn there. I'm going to make a reference here to Acts chapter 9. If you want to know what changed Paul's life, it's found in Acts chapter 9. That as he's going about breathing out these threatenings and slaughterings and cursings, against the church of God. He is walking on the road to Damascus and he sees a bright light shining above him. He hears a voice that speaks directly to him. He has a conversation with God Himself. The men that were with him heard a voice that saw no man. And the light that shined out of heaven in Acts chapter 9 on Saul of Tarsus affected Saul of Tarsus and nobody else. It shoots down the idea that God just wants everybody to be saved. Because if he wanted everybody to be saved, he'd affected everybody in that in that square foot. He wasn't concerned about everybody. There was one person in particular he was concerned about, Saul of Tarsus. He spoke directly to Saul of Tarsus, changed his life right there. It was not Saul's will. It was not Saul's desire. It was not Saul's good works that brought God to him, it was God Himself that came to Saul of Tarsus. And when God Himself spoke to Saul of Tarsus and struck him down on the Damascus road, that is what changed his life ultimately. And that's the very thing then that would allow Paul to become a better person till the day he died. But it was also the very thing that caused Paul to sort of have a uh, progressive dislike of himself. First one of those is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9 for I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle for I persecuted the church of God. So he calls himself the least of the apostles. The next one is found in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. He called himself the least of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8. He says unto me. Who am less than the least of all saints. Is this grace given. That I should preach among the Gentiles. The unsearchable riches of Christ. So what did he say in Ephesians 3 8. He says now I am less. Than the least. You see this progressive downward grade. He's going here. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm less than the least. And then he finally wraps it up in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. I like this one. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me. For he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. I often wondered about that phrase, he counted me faithful. We often talk about good works don't do anything for us. Um, They don't do anything for us heavenly. Paul was a smart man though. Saul of Tarsus was an educated man. And And Saul of Tarsus was a diligent man. Get this. He was a diligent man. You know, you you can even say something good about the devil. Y'all realize that? Devil's not lazy. Devil don't quit. Devil doesn't give up. Would to God that some of us as Christians had the zeal the devil had. Would to God that some of us as God's people have the desire that the devil has. He doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He's not lazy. Saul of Tarsus did not quit. He did not give up. And he wasn't lazy. I got an idea, says God. Let's quicken him and see what he does with that. Don't give up, don't quit, and don't be lazy. And what did he do? He wrote 14 books of the New Testament. and be faithful, not because he was faithful to God, but just because he's a faithful person. Somebody can be wicked and still be faithful. In other words, somebody can be wicked and still love up to their word. Somebody can be wicked and promise you they're going to rob you blind and rob you blind. You know, politicians. Verse 13, who, speaking of himself, was before a blasphemer and a persecutor And injurious. Um, the term persecutor and blasphemer, there, we know what those, generally what those mean. You ever, you know what the word injurious means? Well, it comes from the root word injury. Now, he didn't say he was injured. He said he was injurious. So, if you're injured by something I do, you're injured and I'm injurious. Paul would remind us that he would tell men and women, he would compel them to blaspheme. He would drag them out of their homes, drag them out of their meeting houses, into the middle of the street, and compel them to blaspheme the name of Christ. Do it or I will kill you. Say, well, nobody can force me to deny my God. You want to bet? Let me stick you in some of these dark rooms that the CIA has and these higher military powers have. Let me treat you a little bit the way they treat them. You know, when our military wants answers from the enemy, they're very well trained at getting those answers. That's just the way it is. Right? Paul says, I was an injurious person. Paul was a murderer. Paul was a blasphemer. Paul was a hateful person. If it weren't for this next phrase... I don't think any of us have any hope. Paul says, But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. What's such a powerful statement? You say, Well, Paul was saved because he was ignorant. That's not what this has reference to. Um, If you turn to the book of Numbers, Chapter 15. I find a curious phrase here. When the Lord is handing down rules for offerings for sins, you can find this written in Leviticus. You can also find it written here in Numbers. But Numbers has two passages together. So we'll just turn to one. Passage real quick. In Numbers 15, verse 27, it says, If any soul sin through ignorance, then he he shall bring a she goat of the first year for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sinneth ignorantly. When he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel and for the stranger that sojourn among them. Verse 30, But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously. In other words, he knows what he's doing and he goes right on doing it. Whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord and that soul shall be cut off from among them. His people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment; that soul shall utterly be cut off; his iniquity shall be upon him. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Keep in mind you're reading from the Old Testament as well. Keep in mind you're reading from the perspective of God. Don't like you very much in the Old Testament. There's something that's got to stand between God and you. To not only make an atonement for the sins of ignorance, but for the sins of presumption as well. And that sacrifice was Christ. That Christ came down and he made sacrifice for an individual who now, back to First Timothy chapter 1, when Paul says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 15, that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Remember, we talked about that progressive dislike of self? Where Paul says, I'm less than the apostles. I'm less than the least of the apostles. I am now not just a sinner, but I am the chief of them. There was great repentance that was seen in Paul's life. Paul was a murderer, but he could stop killing. Paul was a liar. He could stop lying and he could tell, start telling the truth. Paul was a blasphemer. That can be put away as well. But you notice what you know what can't be done. Paul cannot go back and resurrect the families he destroyed. He cannot go into homes and take the place of the mothers and the fathers and possibly some of the children that he stoned and put to death. He cannot go back and find everyone that He caused to blaspheme and encourage them to have faith. I've often wondered if this is the thorn in the flesh that Paul speaks about uh, in the book of Corinthians when he says, I begged the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh What is this thorn in the flesh? I've often wondered if it's not the faces of the men and women he puts to death that he sees every night when he goes to sleep. There are certain things repentance will correct. There are some things it will not correct, no matter how you try. the one thing that made the biggest difference in Paul's life was somebody as dark and black and wicked and sinful as him. That where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. This was the lesson. This was the lesson that the ten booms were teaching the world at that time. Her sister Betsy that died Told Corey, she says, we have to go and we have to tell them what we've learned in the camps. We have to tell them that there's no pit so deep and no place so dark that God Himself cannot reach. Paul was a murderer. Paul was a liar. It's a blasphemer. He persecuted the church and he wasted it. And yet God used him to write fourteen books of the New Testament, to become a prolific writer, a great evangelist, a pastor and teacher. Just imagine if you've been divorced.